Back when uh, MTV got its start in the early 80s, how many of you are familiar with MTV, music television? Uh, it got its start in the early 80s. Some of you were, were born after, who, how many of you here were born after 1985? Raise your hand. Okay, we had a fair amount of you. You don't even know what I'm talking about, okay? Uh, so just listen in. You'll, you'll learn some history here from the 80s, Okay. Uh, I graduated from high school in 1980, so I watched music television, MTV, a lot. But when MTV uh, came into vogue, it was a brand new genre. There was no genre called um, uh, music videos. There wasn't. Uh, We now are so used to it, having video along with a pop rock song, but it didn't exist before then. And they just started to come out with it, and so they created a whole channel where you could just binge on these things over. You could just sit there and watch album after album, artist after artist, and watch all the new songs with a video background to it. And they dubbed it music television. When they did that, um, they created this byline for the whole that sold it to the culture. And the byline was this. Too much is never enough. I want my MTV. And so they would have different artists come on there and just say, too much is never enough. And then it would come on, the thing would come, beam, 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 I want my MTV. And it was kind of this whole idea of, hey, the whole idea of too much is never enough was not invented, though, by music television. They were just smart marketing people. See, they figured out that Americans, especially North Americans, love the idea of too much never being enough. Because we live in what? A consumer economy. We don't even live in capitalism anymore. We have now moved to something called consumer economy that is based on you and I consuming things from the United States and all over the world. And that's how our economy works. At one time, it was an industrial economy, and it was built on capitalism, but it's really not anymore. It's kind of capitalism, but really it's based on how much you and I consume. And that's why every commercial is about Consume more, too much is never enough. If you have this car, it's not good enough. When you get another car, it's got to have more features on it. It's got to have more stuff on it. Matter of fact, one car isn't good enough. You have to have two or three cars. You have to have a truck and a car. You have to have an SUV with everything on it, you know? And so too much is what? Never enough. Let's just say it out loud together. It's part of the mantra of our culture. Too much is never enough. We live with it. It burns in the back of our minds all the time. But MTV was very smart. They took this whole idea of too much is never enough Because they figured out in some sense it's a cry of the human soul. Because actually too much is never enough was invented by God as a good thing. Did you know that? God invented us to have a cry in the human soul that says of God alone too much is never enough. And in the Garden of Eden before the fall if you read Genesis you'll see too much was never enough for Adam and Eve. They could never get enough of God. Never enough fellowship, never enough worship, never enough intimacy and and goodness of God in their life. But what happens when sin entered the world, it took everything that was good and it just turned it on its side a bit. It skewed it. So it turned worship of God, which is too much is never enough. I can never get enough of this worship of Almighty God, my Father, and the the Son who loves me and the Spirit who, who compels me. And it turned it on its head to something called idolatry. Idolatry is misplacing God, displacing God with worship of self, worship of our children, worship of our culture, worship of too much is never enough of something else rather than God. Simply, idolatry. And so Paul 
was facing this. We've been facing this dilemma since day one of when sin entered the world. Probably like day seven or eight, I guess, when sin entered the world. But we've been facing this dilemma, and Paul faced it too. That even the folks in Philippi who were going through kind of a persecution for being, or the Christians were going through this, because Philippi was a place of great commerce at the time. And too much is never enough was part of it. And so he knew that the church was suffering from being sucked in by that cultural mantra of too much is never enough and turning it on its side. And they weren't worshiping Jesus Christ. They were worshiping themselves or the culture or more, the idea of more and better and bigger or whatever. And Paul wanted to help them rediscover joy because he knew this. One of the ways joy is interrupted is when we take the good message of too much is never enough and we just turn it on its side and it becomes about us and it becomes about others. And when our worship is turned and skewed just a little bit off, that's the word for iniquity, by the way, in the Old Testament. When your intentions are just a little bit off. It's called iniquity, sin. Okay? Just a little bit off, and Satan loves that. And we feed into it. Because the cry of the soul is too much is never enough for God. But it gets turned and skewed a little bit. And Paul knew that. And so he said to them, watch out that you're not buying into the culture definition of too much is never enough and not into the Christian definition of too much is never enough with God. Matter of fact, the Westminster Confession says this. The Westminster Confession has been around for hundreds of years. Man's chief end is to know God and to enjoy him altogether. Listen to that. Man's chief end is to know God and to enjoy him altogether, to worship God. To know God. That's what God created us for. To know him. To be compelled to him. To feel in our soul, too much is never enough of God. I've gotten to know Jesus and he redeemed me, but too much is never enough. I, I need to let him sanctify me and grow me in him. Too much is never enough. As I'm on a, the path of sanctification, I keep giving over parts of my life. Too much is never enough. I need more of God, more of God, more of God. And Paul knew that. Even when he was confined to a prison cell and under house arrest, he was saying, too much is never enough of God. And so when it comes down to this whole getting this thing straight again and getting that whole mantra right again that too much is never enough about God, but not about me, not about our culture, not and we do that by making three choices. We make the contentment choice, the worship choice, and we make the generosity choice. And so Paul talks to the early church about all three. He said, "You have a choice to make." And the choices that you make are important. And when you make this contentment choice and this worship choice and this generosity choice, it will help joy to return to your life. And the joy of the Lord will be your strength and not be interrupted anymore. Because you see, when you're on this quest and you, you've got the too much is never enough wrong and too much is never enough for you and too much is never enough stuff and too much is never enough of somebody else or for my kids or whatever, when you have that wrong, you don't have joy. You're on a treadmill. Too much is never enough. When you have that right about God, too much is never enough. You have joy. Because you get a little bit of God, and then you go for more of God, and he gives you more of him. Because he's like, hey, I'm with you all the time. I'm here. I'm not hiding myself from you. As a matter of fact, it's you that need to be more vulnerable with me. I'm totally vulnerable with you and open to you. 
And so when we get this right, this too much is never enough. Joy stops being interrupted. It returns to our soul because that's the way God made us to return to Eden. And the real definition of too much is never enough. So I want to talk to you about these three choices that Paul talks about this morning. And your outline's a little bit different that I'm going to give you than what you have there. And since I'm right, just follow me, okay? So there's these three choices. And the first one is, when too much is never enough, choose contentment. Choose contentment, okay? Life is full of choices, right? It's full of choices. This afternoon, many of you on your way home will stop at a fast food restaurant. It's okay, I'm not indicting you about that. I do that a lot myself. But you stop there and you're mesmerized, right? I kind of like it now when I pull up to Chick-fil-A, which you can't on Sunday. Kind of, kind of God bless them for that. I don't know. I, you know, I actually have driven up a number of times to drive up when it's like, hey, there's nobody here on Sunday. This is great. I'm going to get great service. I don't know what I'm thinking. But I'm a bit overwhelmed sometimes when I look at that menu, right? You've got all these choices to make, and you're like, now they've got new stuff on the menu. It's like they've got a menu here, a menu. That they actually add on. At Wendy's, they have like three, you know. It's like you're going through this cavalcade of, of, of menus, and you can't decide. I mean, choices are in front of us all the time about the simplest things, but the choices that we make are about our soul. And the choice to be contentment, have contentment, is something we need to return to over and over and over again. This afternoon after the second service, after this service, Debbie and I are are driving directly to Maryland. So when I'm done here, I need to not have a lot of questions. God bless you all. I'm leaving. And uh, we have to be to Maryland by 2 o'clock. They wanted us to be there by 12 o'clock, which is virtually impossible. And I said, no, we can be there by 2 o'clock. Can someone stay? And uh, we're going to decide when we get there, are we going to adopt Charlie or not? We're going to get to meet Charlie today. And uh, it's been about a year of doing online searches, and uh, Thursday night we did an hour interview over the phone. We've had to release all of our medical records from the past and sign off on that. Just an amazing amount of stuff we've had to do just to meet Charlie today. As a matter of fact, one of my references wasn't in on Friday. My other one was, and it was glowing, of course. (laughs) And they were like, oh, we can't let you see Charlie on Sunday if you don't get your reference. And so I had to call my friend and text my friend. It's Mark Shuey. How, how many of you know Mark? You know, yeah. Mark's a great guy. I said, Mark, Mark, I'm calling you to give a reference and make it good. <laughs> if you're going to give me a bad reference, don't call back. Okay, I'll get someone else to do it. So he did. He called. He got it in. We actually had to get a shot for one of our another family members. They said, we got to make sure they have the shot before you see Charlie on Sunday. Because if you adopt Charlie and take him home and that other family member doesn't have their shot. They, can't, they cannot be in the same house together. I'm like, okay. So we get, get the other family member, get them to the doctor yesterday morning, get them their shot, do all that kind of stuff. Because we've got to make a choice today. And this choice is life-changing. We're going to decide whether we adopt Charlie or not. And if Charlie growls at me, I'm not adopting him. Most of you figured out by now Charlie's a dog. He's a Hungarian pointer, mix. And he's my graduation gift from my wife to me for graduating with my doctorate degree. So we've been searching for about a year now online. 
because I wanted a Visla. A Visla is a Hungarian pointer, but they cost about $2,000, so I just kind of rescinded that down. I'll take a Visla mix, and I'll adopt a dog for $300. That's a little bit better. Of course, we know it's not just 300 right? Then we got the shots. I mean, they're like, yeah, he's all the data shots, but within two days, you have to have, take him to the vet and... You know, he's got to be totally checked out. And it, for t- you won't get, if we adopt Charlie today, you won't get to meet him for two weeks because he has to stay in our house, in his crate, and only be walked in our backyard. He's on lockdown for two weeks because it's very stressful for Charlie, okay, to be adopted. You can tell I'm a, just a little bit cynical about this game. <laughs> for Pete's sake, we're good people. Let us have this dog. You were going to euthanize him two weeks ago. I'm from Lewistown. What can I say? (laughs) But it's a big choice. We face choices every day. And Puss, our cat, is glad. She's glad she's up to date in her shots of yesterday morning, but her world's going to be rocked if we bring Charlie home today. Another thing I think is kind of funny about Charlie, let's you know this. My brother-in-law's nickname is Charlie. So I don't know whether to change the name or just to leave it. And kind of have some fun with my brother-in-law. So we'll see. I'd really like to name him Judah, because Judah is the Old Testament word for praise. And I always wanted to have a dog that every time that I'm, I'm calling them, I'm thinking of praising God. That's why Jesus is called the Lion of Judah, the Lion of Praise, the Lion of Worship. Okay? So we'll see. I don't know if Charlie can understand Judah. I don't know how that works. And uh, then Deb wants to call him Hey Jude. <laughs> But life's full of choices, and Paul knew that. And he said, this choice of being content in whatever your situation is. And here's Paul. He's in prison. He's in, uh, he was in prison, and then he was under house arrest and toggled back and forth because he was a Roman citizen. They figured out, ooh, we're not allowed to shackle him and chain him, but we can house arrest him. So he was under both. He was back and forth. But they still had him in lockdown, so to speak. And Paul said, whether I'm free and I'm preaching the gospel out there or whether I'm in chains and preaching the gospel in here or whether I'm under house arrest, I'm free on the inside because I choose contentment. I choose that too much is never enough of Jesus, but everything else I'm fine with, whatever quotient I get of it, whatever God assigns to me. And in those days, if you were under house arrest or in prison, your friends helped to feed you and clothe you and take care of you. Under Roman rule, it wasn't up to the Roman government to take care of it. Your friends had to come and bring you food. Your friends had to come and bring you clothes. Your friend, that's why Paul says here in the letter, thank you for not only supporting the churches through your offerings, but by your personal support of me while I was in prison because I needed to be supported. I couldn't make a living as a tent maker. I wasn't allowed to work and make a living because Paul was a tent maker. He actually made and constructed tents and sold them. That's how he made his living. That's how he made his money to sustain himself as an apostle while he was out planting churches. And he could do that for whatever city he went to. He could be a tent maker. That's why you, they talk about church planters being tent makers or tent making minister referring back to the apostle Paul. And uh, so Paul knew that. And so Paul is saying, I'm not saying this, he says, because I am in need. For I've learned to be content whatever the circumstance. I have learned to be content, underline that, whatever the circumstance. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. And I've learned the secret of being content. What is the secret of being content? 
choosing contentment. In any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I'm choosing contentment. And here's what I want you to remember. Contentment is not something that we achieve, buy or become. Contentment is a choice we make over and over again. Let's read this out loud together. Contentment is not something we achieve or buy or become. Contentment is a choice that we make over and over again. Now, how many of you remember my refrigerator story from a few months ago? Remember me whining and fussing and moaning about the LED lights in my refrigerator not working, and I was all upset at Sears about that, and then they got it fixed, and then they went out of business. <laughs> went out of business around here. It's like, where am I going to get service now? You know. So anyhow, got that taken care of, then our washing machine, it went kaflui, and they said, no sense in replace, no sense in repairing it, cost too much, just replace it. So we replaced that. So we you know, replaced the refrigerator, we replaced it. So then three weeks ago, our dryer, it stops. I call the repair person. She asked me how old the dryer is. She asked me, are there any other indications? I said, well, it smells like an electrical fire to me. And so I unplugged it, but the clothes smell like something. And I said, but it's a gas dryer. And she said, oh, it's probably the ignition system doesn't work anymore on it. It's 10 years old. There's no sense in us coming out and charging you $89 and telling you you need to replace it. Just go replace it. So Debbie and I went out, and we picked out a dryer three weeks ago. And I think I'm picking up a dryer, I'm buying it, and I'm thinking, if I, get, I pay him the 150 bucks to deliver it, it's probably going to come that week, right? It's still not at our house. We just paid for it in full, and we still don't have it. It's not coming till Thursday, because Sears went out of business, and now these other people that are selling dryers, they're overwhelmed, but trying to install these things and get out there with these things. At least that's what they're telling me. Who knows, right? So what are we doing until then? We're taking our clothes to my in-law's house down the street and drying them. We wash them at our house, and then we take them there to dry them. We go to laundromats and do our laundry and stuff like that. These first world problems, you know, first world problems. But I noticed that I was becoming kind of, like, irritated about this. And, uh... I, I, by the way, I do my own laundry. You know, we had three kids. I grew up in a family of five people. I've done my own laundry since I was in seventh grade. Uh, do my own stuff. My, my mother-in-law, God bless her soul, irons my shirts for me, so they look like this. But I do my own laundry. So, sorry, guys, if I just got in trouble with that. It's really not that hard, gentlemen, to do your own laundry. But I was getting irritated because I'd had to wash it there, and then I put it in my car, and it was so hot on those hot days i get in my car, and it was like a steam bath in there because I didn't have time to get in the dryer yet. And so then I started, my mother-in-law said, just bring it over. I'll dry it. And she's so nice. She's so kind. She dries it. She folds it. She irons everything. I said, God bless your soul. Yesterday, she dried like four loads of laundry for because I was tired of trying. Here's what happened. I couldn't find a laundromat that was near us or open. How many of you have tried to find a laundromat lately to do your laundry at? It's hard. And you know what? There's a lot of people in this area that when I look at our housing, because I looked at a, just a, an overhead map, they probably can't afford a washer and dryer. And we don't, there's no laundromats for them. So I'm thinking, how inconvenient for me, but how inconvenient for somebody who can't, their house or their mobile home isn't even big enough to hold a washer and dryer, and they've got to drive like five miles to go do their laundry. 
Now, I remember doing that when I was young and single, and I would sit there and read things called magazines. Do you know what magazines are? Read Sports Illustrated and stuff like that. But I started to think, you know, I'm kind of irritated, but what about the guy who couldn't go out with cash and buy a new dryer today? Mine's coming Thursday. It's choosing contentment. Choosing contentment. Okay, big deal. So I had to dry my clothes at my in-law's house for a couple weeks. So I, I had to, but you can, you know, I was starting to become just possessed with this idea of I'm ticked and I'm going back to Lowe's and I'm getting a discount. And, and finally I said, just chill out. Wait for the dryer. Choose contentment. Even in the small things, choose to be content because contentment is not something we achieve or buy or become. Contentment is a choice that we make. What? Over and over and over again. And when we do that, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Our joy returns when we choose to be content. Joy comes back. It's not displaced. It's not interrupted. When too much is never enough, number two, we need to choose worship. We need to choose worship. I know it says rejoice in God alone, but really it should say choose worship. This is your second choice. Choose worship. Now, you've probably heard this verse that Paul penned here, quoted by Christian athletes or, or celebrities, and you've probably even seen it maybe tattooed on parts of their body or whatever, or maybe you've quoted it yourself from time to time. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Or I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Or in Christ alone. You know, you've probably seen it places or even quoted it at times, right? And it's kind of a popular verse. I mean, people have, even people that aren't of Christian faith or whatever, they, they know it and, and they kind of know about it at least. And so Paul is saying this. He's saying, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Let's read it out loud together. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. One more time. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. He was saying all this was, I can be in, in, in uh, great want or I can be in you know, the lap of luxury. I can do all this and anything in between. I can do all this. I can live in all this. I can choose contentment and I can choose worship in the midst of all of this. I can be, have the joy of the Lord in my life and so can you when you choose contentment and when you choose to worship God first, when you choose to worship him first. There's a great book on worship. It's just a small little book. It, it, it's probably a decade old or older now. It's called The Air I Breathe, Worship as a Way of Life by Louis Giglio. Louis Giglio, if you don't know who he is, traveled for years and still does with the Passion Ministry. And Passion goes to college campuses and leads huge groups of students in worship. They've written all kinds of songs, all kinds of young artists. A lot of the songs that we sing on Sunday morning come out of the passion movement. And passion is all about the whole idea of too much is never enough with God. Too much is never enough of God. That's what passion means, okay? They believe that and they live that and they're trying to help the students live that out. And so Louis usually preaches and teaches and a worship team leads and thousands and thousands of students come out for these things. If you, if you haven't seen it, Google it and look at it. You'll see tens of thousands, some of them at times in stadiums full of them just worshiping and him teaching or whatever. And it was birthed out of uh, North Point Church in Atlanta, Georgia. Andy Stanley's the pastor there. So it was birthed out of that, that church. But Andy's a, a good writer 
And he writes about worship in a very interesting way, in a very biblical way. And he says these words about worship in his book, The Air That I Breathe, Worship as a Way of Life. He says, worship is the activity of the human soul. So not only do all people worship, but they worship all of the time. Worship isn't just a Sunday thing, it's an all-the-time thing. Right this very instant, all across your city, your town, people of all shapes and sizes, people of every age and purpose are doing it. They're continually making decisions based on what they value most. Write that down. Continually making decisions on what I value most is worship. That's the true definition of worship. So Giglio is saying, and it's true, everyone worships something or somebody. And when we're worshiping ourselves and when we're worshiping our culture and we're worshiping our children, we're involved in idolatry and too much will never be enough and it will lead us down a road of destruction. And that's why Jesus came and died on the cross so we could get our worship back in the right place. The God of the universe who made us, made us to walk with him in Eden and have intimate relationship with The God who is the only thing we should ever say of is too much is never enough of him. We should never say that or think that of anything else. And so that's why everyone's worshiping all the time. I could show you film clips today of people worshiping at soccer games and golf matches and rock concerts. You see them, they're lifting their hands up there. Worshipping. One of the great gods of our ages was Michael Jackson. All you got to do is watch some of the film clips. People are worshipping, falling down, crying. The, all, all the words for worship in the Old Testament, falling prostrate, cry before me, They're all doing it. Well, Michael, we worship you. We worship you. Michael was another person. He wasn't a god. He's not worthy of our worship. Matter of fact, nothing else is. Your children aren't worthy of your worship. Your job isn't worthy of your worship. Your career isn't worthy of your worship. Your persona isn't worthy of your worship. Your spouse isn't worthy of your worship. There's only one thing in all the universe that you should say. Too much is never enough of him and of that. Too much is never enough. Takes us back to Eden, takes us back to the goodness of God to worship of God, to choosing. Worship is the activity of the human soul. You will and you do worship something. What will it be? What will it be? My brother Lonnie, who lives in New Jersey, a few years older than me. I love to say that about all my brothers and sisters. A few years older than me. I'm catching up. He loves to worship. He just spent some time at a place called Camp of the Woods in Speculator, New York. Anybody ever been to Speculator, New York? It's actually a beautiful place to be. It's in upstate New York. When we lived in upstate, we would go there. Camp of the Woods is a Christian camp. And they have great speakers there. And they have a good worship team. He was so excited because he said, man, I went to worship at Camp of the Woods, in the middle of the woods at Adirondack Mountains, and they had a full orchestra and a rock band together leading worship. It, was, it just rocked. Then I went back to my fire with my wife, and we made some s'mores, and we just sat under the stars, 
And we worship there too. The activity of the human soul is to worship, and you will worship something. My brother often sends me CDs or DVDs of worship. He sent me this one last year called Vertical Church. And I want to play a clip of it for you. Because my brother and I inherited something from my father, and that's a love for worship. A love for music, but really a love for worship. My father would spend countless hours when he came home from the steel mill. He would go down to his man cave in the basement where he could take a shower and scrub off all of the black soot from the steel mill. And then he would go into his little place where he could listen to his music and study his Bible and listen to things. And he would scrub his soul in worship. Because my dad worked in a place. I don't know, I worked in a steel mill one summer. And there was worship of a lot of other things there, especially sexuality. It was nothing to walk around there as a young worker in my young 20s and see pornography everywhere. Magazines stacked high, posters everywhere. And so my father came home to say my focus won't be on my sexuality and eroticism. My focus will be to love my wife. And we will share in a healthy sexuality, but I will scrub my soul. Let this next song scrub your soul. Listen to it closely if you want to mouth the words or sing the words, whatever you want to do. Just listen to it. Help it re- let it help you refocus your soul this morning.
So in order to get ourselves aligned again with God, in order for the joy of the Lord to be our strength instead of us living under the compulsion for more of other things and not more of God, we need to choose contentment. We need to choose worship. And Paul says this, we need to choose generosity. Choose generosity. Like I said before, Paul was living off of the gifts of other people, not only in his ministry, but personally because he was imprisoned and that's the way it worked back then. And if friends and family didn't show up, you were awfully hungry and you didn't have anything to wear and you were destitute. That happened to Paul for a while, but then some people showed up. As a matter of fact, in places still like sub-Saharan Africa, that still happens in the prisons there. And so that's why people like the Christian and Missionary Alliance, who we belong to, go into those prisons and for prisoners who are abandoned by their families, give them clothing and food and the good news of Jesus and care for them. And when you give to the Great Commission Fund, you give to bless those prisoners who have nothing and are left for dead. 
Generosity is a demonstration of obedient trust in an extravagant God. We learned that a few years ago. We did a whole year on generosity. That was our annual theme, and we came up with that. Generosity is a demonstration of obedient trust in an extravagant God. When we give proportionately, systematically, and cheerfully, we reflect the generous nature of our God. So that first line is the thing that we really need to get a hold of. That first line, that first sentence, is the one that helps us say, too much is never enough of him. And when I give to him and his work, it lasts for eternity. Now, if I adopt Charlie today, I'm going to give them a check for $300. It'll go to a good cause. It'll bless some other dogs not being euthanized, and it'll bless some other people to be able to be foster homes for these dogs, but it will not last for eternity. But the $300 that I gave to Daybreak this week will. And when you give to God's work, it lasts for eternity. There's nothing better than you can invest in than the life of the local church, because the local church is the hope of the world. The local church is the hope of the world. I wouldn't have given my life to be a pastor if that wasn't true. I gave my life to Jesus Christ and his work because I believe, and the Bible spells it out, the local church is the hope of the world. Because we are the ones, church, that brings the good news of Jesus Christ and helps people realign themselves to say, too much is never enough of him. Not of me and not of anything else. So we give proportionately. We give at least a tithe or 10% of our income, back to God. We give systematically each week or each month. Whenever we receive payment and God takes care of us, we give back to God. It reminds us of that. We give cheerfully. It's an act of worship. When we give cheerfully, it's just saying, too much is never enough of your kingdom. I want more of your kingdom in me, on me, and through me. And that's why I give. In the back of your... uh, or inside your program guide, there's a response card. And on the back of the response card is the four-month giving challenge, the generosity challenge. It just goes over that again. Generosity is a demonstration of obedient trust and an extravagant God by giving proportionately, systematically, and cheerfully. If you're not giving to God and you find that you're not, your joy has been interrupted, start giving to God. And let that four-month giving challenge be an on-ramp to a new discipline in your life called giving and being generous. Because I can tell you, you will not have the joy of the Lord until you learn how to be a generous person because God is generous. The cross proves that. And when you're generous, God will bless you and he will return to you the joy of the Lord. And the joy of the Lord will be your strength. A few years ago, I ran across this book. One of my friends introduced me to it. One of my mentors It's called My Heart, Christ's Home. You might want to write it down. It's worth reading it. It's just a little booklet. My Heart, Christ's Home by Robert Boyd Munger. M-U-N-G-E-R. If you Google it, you can find it for about 50 cents through InterVarsity Press. If you really want to read it, I have one copy. Whoever comes up to me first after the service can have this copy of it. Okay? Little booklet. Robert Boyd Munger died in 2001, but before that, he uh, pastored at a number of different places, and he was also the professor of evangelism and church strategy at Fuller Theological Seminary in 
in California. Fuller is probably one of the chief schools in all the world that has trained evangelists and pastors and missionaries to go out across the world and take the good news of Jesus Christ. Charles Fuller was an evangelist in the 20s and 30s in California. I actually have vinyl records of Charles Fuller preaching because that's one of the things my dad used to scrub his soul with, the teachings of Charles Fuller about salvation. And when Fuller preached in those times in California, thousands of people came out and came to Christ. Revival was going on. Revival. So Boyd Munger taught at that school for years. He also ended up teaching in a Sunday night service. And here's what happened. A group of students was meeting and inviting friends from the community to come out to the Sunday evening service at a local church. And it ended up that about five or 600 of them would congregate. They'd have a worship time that looked a little bit different than the Sunday morning worship. They'd have different types of music. And they'd have different speakers come in, and their speaker uh, bagged out on them at the last minute. So some, one of them asked, oh, Professor, will you come and speak to us? Now, he was older, and they, didn't think, they thought, well, he's just a fill-in for one night. Well, he ended up speaking to them for about five years every Sunday night because of what happened. That night he started a series with them. He just started to talk about this and it became a series that he wrote called My Heart, Christ's Home. Because he realized that these students, although they were giving their life to Christ and the people from the community were coming, they didn't understand what it meant for God to set up residence in them. They just got saved. They got out of hell, basically. They got their get out of hell free card. But they weren't living for Christ and giving their whole life to him. So he wrote this series of sermons. And in the sermons, he talked, he talked in this image of a home that your life is a house. And you have these different rooms in it. You have the study and the dining room and the living room. So he wrote a sermon on each one on the study, how to give the study to God, how to give the dining room to God, how to give the living room to God, how to give the workshop where you work and your career to God, how to give your man cave to God, your recreational room, how to give the bedroom and your sexuality to God, how to give, the, then he said the last, the le, next to the last sermon was how to give the hall closet to God, and the hall closet is where everything you hid, you, know, you thought was hidden from God, all your vices and all your addictions and all your fears and all your wounds were all in the hall closet, and you need to give that to God, and then he preached one last sermon, and the last sermon was about how to write and turn over the deed of the house to God. And he wrote and he preached these words, transferring the title. Then the thought came to me. I said to myself, I've been, giving, I've been trying to keep this heart of mine clean and available for Christ, but it's really hard work. I start on one room and no sooner have I cleaned it up than I discover another room is dirty. I begin on the second room and the first room is already dusty again. I'm getting tired of trying to maintain a clean heart and an obedient life. I'm just not up to it. Suddenly I ask, Lord, is there any possibility that you would be willing to manage the whole house and to operate it for me just as you did that closet? Could I give it to you, the responsibility of keeping my heart the way it ought to be and doing what I ought to be doing and living the lifestyle you want? I could see his face light up as he replied. I'd love to. This is exactly what I came to do for you. You can't live out the Christian life in your own strength. That's impossible. Let me do it for you and through you. That's the only way it will really work. But he added slowly, I'm not the owner of this house. Remember, I'm just here as your guest. I have no authority to take charge since the property is not mine. It's in your name. 
In a flash, it all became clear. Excitedly, I exclaimed, Lord, you've been my guest, and I've been trying to play the host. From now on, are you willing to be the owner and master of the house and me the servant? Running as fast as I could to the safe in the home, I dialed the numbers. The tumblers rolled, and I reached inside and took out the deed of the house. The deed described the liabilities, the conditions, the location, the situation, every, all the contents of my inner being. Then rushing back to him, I eagerly signed it over, giving him alone for time and eternity the ownership of my home. Dropping to my knees, I presented it to him. Here it is, all that I am, all that I will be forever. Now you run the house. Just let me stay with you as your servant, as your son, as your friend. He took my life that day, and I can give you my word, there is no better way to live the Christian life. He knows how to keep it and use it. A deep peace has settled down on my soul that has remained to this day. The joy of the Lord is my strength. I am his, and he is mine forever, forever. The key to getting the phrase too much is never enough in the right direction is to sign over the whole home. You can do that in prayer right now. You can do that in worship through the next few songs. Lord, I sign over the whole home. Matter of fact, you might want to do that as an exercise this afternoon. You might want to just write down on a piece of paper, Lord, I covenant with you today and I sign over the whole home. I'm all yours. I'm all yours. And guess what? Your joy will return. And the joy of the Lord will be your strength. Let's talk to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for Paul's writing and for the example of Paul and people in our lives and people in these last days, like my dad, who didn't have everything perfect, but he was aligned and you had taken over the home of his life. So Lord, I pray for the folks that are here this morning that during this next song and songs that they would just align themselves with you. They would receive you not only as their savior, but as the owner and Lord of their life. Thank you for Dr. Munger who preached those messages and wrote them into a small booklet. Thank you for more for his life that reaches down to us even today and says, surrender, surrender all to Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.